Good morning, everyone. Welcome to City on a Hill. My name is Jeff. I'm one of the pastors here. It's good to be with you this morning. If you would, grab your copy of Scripture and turn to Daniel 4. This morning, we're continuing our series through Daniel. And you may have noticed that uh, Pastor Dave isn't here this morning. That's because I believe right at this moment, he's uh, on an airplane on the way to Florida for the High Point Send. That's one of our church networks, uh, pastor's retreat. So uh, you could say, you know, getting out of Wisconsin in February, going to Florida, that he is suffering greatly. So please pray for them, him and Bree, as they're gone. Uh, but in all seriousness, uh, if you do think to pray for them, pray for a time of rest and, and being poured into, as they so often pour out uh, to us. Uh, and just that it would be a sweet time of fellowship with some fellow pastors uh, in that way. But we're not here to talk about them. We're here to talk about Daniel 4. And this morning, we're going to be talking about pride. That sounds fun, doesn't it? Pride. And you've probably heard this phrase before, pride comes before a fall. And as far as anyone can tell, that phrase comes from a proverb, Proverbs 16, 18, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And in Daniel 4, we see this proverb played out before us in Nebuchadnezzar's life, his pride leading to his destruction and his downfall. That's why I've entitled this morning's message, Pride Before the Fall. We're going to look at the example of Nebuchadnezzar's life and kind of observe three things specifically this morning. One, the character of pride. Two, the danger of pride. And three, the solution to pride. But as we're about to see, pride has a way of blinding us and, and getting in the way of seeing our own pride. So before we do that, let's ask God to help us this morning to see clearly. Father, we come before you with impure hearts. I pray for humility, that even in this moment as we come to your word, that we would do it with faith and with expectation of what you're about to do in us. Reveal in our hearts and our lives any areas of pride that may be hiding there, that we may be blind to. And Father, we need your help this morning. Speak uh, through me, through your word. Reveal uh, to us. Give us humility. We ask all these things in the name of your son. Amen. Amen. Hopefully you found your way to Daniel 4 by now. We're kind of switching to a brief section of the book of Daniel that's in first person where uh, Nebuchadnezzar, as I affectionately refer to him as, so I might say Nebuchadnezzar, I might say Nebuchadnezzar, I might say Neb, is speaking in the first person. And in verses one through two, he's kind of retroactively saying, uh, uh, this is me testifying about what God has done. And if you're like me, the question that kind of came to mind was, did Nebuchadnezzar really write this? And most commentators or scholars say, no, probably not. Uh, what they are more divided on was, um, it's not uh, uncommon for heads of states to 
issue a statement that they didn't write, right? They're busy people. Uh, so was it uh, something that was written kind of on his behalf in that way and, and that he issued, or was it something that Daniel had written, kind of being aware of the situation? We're not uh, really sure. But the point is, uh, I am sure of what's in our scriptures and what's in the Bible and of the truth of that. So uh, let's start reading in verse 4, actually. So Daniel chapter 4, verse 4. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. And I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. So this probably sounds familiar to you, right? It kind of seems like we already did this once in Daniel. The king has a dream, brings the wise men before him. They can't interpret it. And so he, uh, eventually Daniel is brought in. And that's exactly what's happening here too, except this time he shared the dream, didn't help the wise men at all. Um, so he shares the dream, Daniel's brought in, um, and, he, and then we kind of get the specifics of the dream. We're going to skip that this morning just for time, and because we kind of get a retelling of it in, in Daniel's kind of response or in his interpretation. So uh, we're going to kind of skip ahead to verse 18. Don't do that in your devotionals, so don't be like, oh, it's the Old Testament. They're going to repeat that anyway. There's my caveat, but we're going to do it right now. So verse 18. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw in you, Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered and said, my lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. The tree you saw, which grew and became strong, so that its top reached to heaven. A little throwback to the Tower of Babel there. And it was visible to the end of the earth, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and which was food for all, under which beasts of the field found shade, and whose branches the birds of the heavens lived. It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven, and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze, and the tender grass of the field. And let him be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beasts of the field, till seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord, the king, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven. And seven periods of time shall pass over you, till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men, and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. Verse 28. 
All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, verse 30. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? It's the uh, ultimate moment of pride for Nebuchadnezzar, the prime example, the epitome, the embodiment, the I'm running out of fancy synonyms to say like this is pride, right? It'd be hard to come up with a more prideful statement. And I think there's a lot for us to learn here about pride from it. So I want us to camp on kind of what we've read up to this point in this statement for a bit as we kind of talk through our points. So let's start by talking about that character of pride. What is the character of pride? And and get our mind wrapped around what is pride really? Because I think in this age of social media where we're kind of encouraged to uh, post about uh, what you're eating, what you're doing, your thoughts about anything, even if no one really asked you, that our view of pride might get a little uh, distorted, or there might be some confusion around what is that really. So the first kind of characteristics of pride we're talking about this morning is wanting to be like God. What do I mean by that? Well, Nebuchadnezzar, he sees himself as self-sufficient like God is, right? Verse 30, this great Babylon which I have built. Now, the issue isn't, is Babylon actually great? Babylon was actually really great. You can uh, think of the Hanging Gardens, maybe, which was supposed to be one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. Now, scholars at this point kind of are like, Did the gardens really exist? We don't have any evidence for it. Uh, So that's kind of up in the air. But regardless, there are other things about Babylon which were great. So the walls of Babylon were famous. They were kind of like two, two main sets of walls. The inner walls were 21 feet thick with reinforced towers every 60 feet. The outer walls were 11 feet thick with watchtowers 40 feet tall. There were 53 temples. There were three palaces. They made incredible advancements in mathematics and other sciences. And I was even reading one scholar saying that even if the Hanging Gardens didn't exist, it didn't really matter because Babylon the city was so great that the city itself would have been or could have been an ancient wonder of the world. So if that's not the issue, if, if it's not that Babylon wasn't actually great, what is the issue? Is it, is it that uh, Nebuchadnezzar didn't build him himself, like he didn't get out there with bricks and mortar, and he's like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this. Well, kind of, but not really again, right? Like rulers this time would talk about uh, the accomplishments and, and their nation's accomplishments as kind of them doing it, especially in this kind of uh, all-powerful, all autocratic kind of government system. No, the point is, or the problem is, that underneath all of that is a failure to acknowledge God, that there is any help or dependence on God. It was my kingdom, my people built this, and I led them to do this. I made Babylon what it is today. There is no acknowledgement that God was the one that allowed this to come to pass, or the, the one that put him in this position of power and, and gave him this success. It was me, not God, 
me. And even though we're not kings and queens, we don't have our own kingdoms, we do the same thing. We like to think of ourselves as self-sufficient, don't we? Maybe not in really, really big things, but the normal stuff of life. And we often find ourselves trying to build our own kingdoms. That's the kind of second characteristic of how we try to be like God. We try to build ourselves a kingdom just like Nebuchadnezzar builds himself a kingdom. Just like God is building himself a kingdom of heaven. Again, look at verse 30. He's building his royal residence. And I know that's a little weak, so if you don't feel like, oh, that's not enough to prove your point, uh, take a look at this brick. That's probably, of all the things you uh, thought you might hear at church this morning, take a look at this brick. Probably didn't make top 10. But take a look at this brick. Uh, so it's inscribed with some um, uh, Babylonian version of, of script. And it says basically this translated, I am Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, who provides for a couple temples uh, that I cannot pronounce, the eldest son of someone I can't pronounce, king of Babylon. And it's not like there's just a few of these bricks. They've literally found thousands of these bricks all over the ruins of Babylon, which leads scholars to believe that every uh, kind of public works project or any official building project was built with bricks inscribed or stamped with the name of Nebuchadnezzar. Pride says, I am building my kingdom, not God's. I'm building my kingdom. But this isn't an isolated incident in the Bible, is it? So maybe not to this extent, but he's not the only one who wants to be like God. Do you remember Adam and Eve in Genesis 3? What did the serpent say to Adam and Eve to tempt them to eat the forbidden fruit? Out of all the things he could have said, what did he say to tempt them to eat the forbidden fruit? But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired to make one wise, desired to be like God, she took of its fruits and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. We all have this pride, this desire to be like God ever since the garden. Don't turn a blind eye to it. That's kind of the first step in humility is seeing your pride for what it really is, pride. Now you might say, but aren't we supposed to be like God, right? Ephesians 5.1, be imitators of God as beloved children, right? Definitely. That's why, this is a mini lesson on reading your Bible in its context, right? That's why context is so important because when we add verse 2, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. We imitate God and Christ in so much as we are supposed to be holy and sacrificial in how we love one another. That's a, a very different thing from pride. 
And that difference comes from, uh, at least in part, in, in what is my ultimate goal? And in pride, my ultimate goal is my glory. Again, verse 30, we see that everything that Neb is doing is for the glory, this is his talking, is for the glory of my majesty. We, humanity, have a kind of a glory problem, don't we? It's not just that uh, we want to be on stage because some of us don't, or we want to be on the podium or the center of attention or something like that. We want to be the point. It's not necessarily about being the center of attention. It's about being the point. And we all know, right? We all know 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And yet we turn around, and so often we are about our glory. I'm about my glory. Pastor Dave mentioned in a, a previous week in our series, this land of Shinar and, and its connection with the Tower of Babel and how uh, Babel and, and Babylon were in the kind of same region. That is Nebuchadnezzar's legacy. And we'll see not much has changed since then. So let me just read this snippet from Genesis 11. It's about the Tower of Babel. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and these other supplies. And they said, come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. There's that connection I was talking about before. And let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Ever since the garden, ever since the flood, ever since the Tower of Babel, we have wanted to be the point. Our kingdom, our glory. So it's based on all these characteristics, this character of pride, that I'm going to finally kind of give you the definition of pride I'm going with, which is C.S. Lewis's definition of pride. Pride is the ruthless, sleepless, unsmiling concentration on the self. Pride is the ruthless, sleepless, unsmiling concentration on the self. So, why are we spending all this time talking about pride and specifically about what pride looks like? How might you identify it? Here's one potential option. Is it so we can go, like, oh, look at City on a Hill. They can define pride rather, rather nicely, and, and they're very smart and things like that, right? No, because knowledge without humility puffs up. You, know, you can think about the Pharisees. They had lots of knowledge. Um, Jesus wasn't a big fan of them. Think about another way. What is, what is Jesus wanting for us this morning? Like, what is Jesus wanting us to get from this, because it's not, it's not my church, it's not Pastor Dave's church. We are under shepherds to the shepherd, Jesus Christ. And our shepherd already knows areas of pride in our life, doesn't he? He's not sitting up there like, man, I wonder, I wonder how Jeff is proud. Like, I wonder how, what does, he, what does he need to grow in, right? He already knows, and he wants me to know too. Like, he wants me to be able to see the pride in my 
own life. He wants me to be able to work on the pride of my own life. He wants to be able to uh, talk. He wants me to be able to talk with him about the pride of my own life. Am I praying with him about these areas of pride? And it's because of our second point. Not, not just because it, that, that's what it means to be like God, even though that maybe is the most important point, but kind of on a practical note, there's danger to pride. There's a danger of pride that leads to destruction, like we were talking about. As we read on in verse 31, we'll see uh, what that is, how it destroys Nebuchadnezzar and his pride. While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox. And his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till his hair grew as long as eagles' feathers, and his nails were like birds' claws. In his pride, God punishes Nebuchadnezzar and, and basically drives him away until this point where he's acting like an animal. Now, I told someone this week that we were going to be talking about werewolves. So, again, not something you'd hear in a sermon. <laughs> and this is nothing I'd ever heard of before, but there's actually a psychiatric syndrome, excuse me, a psychiatric syndrome where a person believes they're in an animal, and it's called clinical lycanthropy, and it's not like, oh, you turn into a werewolf, but it's that you believe you are a different animal. And wolves and dogs are maybe the most common form of this, but there have also been multiple reported cases of people believing they are transformed into hyena, uh, or cat, or horse, or bird, or tiger, or frog, or snake, or even a bee. Transformed to the extent that people have been documented crawling around on all fours and attempting to eat grass. And I bring that up simply to say, these examples are very rare, but not unheard of. Like this has happened to people since the time of Nebuchadnezzar. And while Neb's case is pretty extreme, right, there's a broader point here that pride makes you a fool. Pride makes you see the world inaccurately. You don't see the world accurately. Now, my, my quick sidebar would be, uh, don't hear me say uh, that people suffering from this psychiatric syndrome, it's because they're proud. Um, I'm sure I don't know what's going on in those situations, but my, my um, heart kind of goes out to them, right? They're suffering greatly in that. Uh, so all that to say, I'm not trying to poke fun at those people or say um, they're getting what they deserve or something like that. So sidebar over. The point remains though, since that's none of us, that it made Neb a fool, and pride makes us a fool. And one of the ways it does that is it blinds you to the truth. It blinds you to the truth. Don't let pride 
keep you from taking that next step that Jesus has for you. Don't let pride blind you to that next step or from taking that next step that Jesus has for you. What did it do in Nebuchadnezzar's case? Think of all the opportunities he had. He saw Daniel and his friends eat nothing but vegetables and water and to be growing stronger than all the other young men. He saw God give Daniel the dream and its interpretation and interpret multiple dreams at this point. He saw God rescue Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the fiery furnace. And this chapter is thought to be about 30 years later from the previous one. So if that's accurate, he would have had like roughly 43 years with Daniel and his friends to observe them and to get to know the one true God. And he doesn't see it. And when Daniel comes in, I believe it's verse 27, I don't have it right in front of me. When Daniel comes and gives him the interpretation to the dream and he, he asks Nebuchadnezzar to repent, what does he do? He does nothing. He's blind to his own pride. He's prevented from seeing God for who he truly is. He's prevented from repenting and taking that next step because of his pride. Don't let pride prevent you from taking that next step Jesus has for you. And as far as we know, Nebuchadnezzar still saw God as an important God, maybe a, a powerful God, one that's especially good at interpreting dreams among many. Not the God, not the point. In fact, we have all these things God has built us into our lives to remind us that we're not the point, right? So we're tempted to be self-sufficient, and yet every day we have to drink water, we have to eat food. If we try to go without sleeping, eventually we will just faint. I want to build my earthly kingdom, and we know from history no earthly kingdom ever lasts. Our whole universe, this physical kind of universe we live in, is designed to, to entropy, to, to gradually break down, to tend to chaos. And unless the Lord comes first, we know one day we will die. I, you, are not the point. But this idea of, of um, being made fool is all over the Old Testament, New Testament by our pride. And here's just one example from Ezekiel. Son of man, you dwell in the midst of a rebellious house who have eyes to see but see not, who have ears to hear but hear not, for they are a rebellious house. It was because, it was because of the Israelites' pride, their rebellion, that they couldn't see, they couldn't hear, the truth before them about God and about their idolatry. And it's in pride that we exchange the greater for the lesser. We fool and cheat ourselves out of what we could have, right? God's kingdom, God's creation was, was created out of nothing and he doesn't need help from anyone. He is self-sufficient. Do you remember that from our Acts series? The God who made the world and everything in it being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and 
everything. I mean, there's not even a comparison, right? Nebuchadnezzar, we need help. We need help from other people. We need help from God, and he needs nothing. He speaks, and it happens. God's kingdom is better. God's kingdom will last. It will never end just like him, and he has the power to bring it about. And it's very foolish indeed for us to exchange getting to participate in God's kingdom for our own that we try to set up. We can participate in this God's everlasting kingdom and instead we settle for building our own. But of all these reasons, pride is most dangerous because it leads us to evil. It leads us to sin. Nebuchadnezzar was not a very nice man. Do we, all, do we all know that? He was not a very nice man. I'll just give you one example to remind you. We, we talked about this one uh, briefly already from 2 Kings 25. This is when he's conquering Jerusalem. Then they captured the king, the king of Jerusalem, and brought him up to the king of Babylon at Ribla, and they passed sentence on him. They slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah. So that was the king's name, Zedekiah. They slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes and put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him in chains and took him to Babylon. And they did that, so not only to kill his family, so that the last thing he would see before he went blind was him killing, uh, Nebuchadnezzar killing his family, seeing his sons be killed. He was not a very nice man. And in verse 27, Daniel's exhortation to uh, Repentance for Neb includes uh, practice righteousness. Show mercy to the oppressed. The only reason you need to tell anyone that is if they're not already doing those things, right? He was not a very nice man. One more C.S. Lewis quote, I promise. (laughs) That'll be the last one. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. It is pride which has been the chief cause of misery in every nation and every family since the world began. And in fact, from Augustine to Aquinas to Bonhoeffer to obviously C.S. Lewis and Tim Keller, for centuries, the church has considered pride not to just be a problem, but the problem, the root of all sins could be traced back to pride. Because in pride, we're too busy thinking about ourselves to really truly love others, including God. There's always calculations. How, how do I compare to others? How do I stack up? Am I better than them? Am I worse than them? Am I meeting my own standard for me? Am I meeting their standard for me? Using people to get something I want to build, my kingdom, even if it's just their praise or their, um, the reputation of being a good person? Am I using others to primarily to feel a certain way of, oh, wow, it, it feels good when I uh, serve other people in this way? Friends, if you get nothing out of this section, it should be this, that we need to check our pride. We need to check our pride. 
We need to know what it looks for, what it means. Be, out, be on the lookout for pride in our lives. Where am I operating? Where I'm at the center, I'm the point. Are you aware where, of where pride lingers in your life? Are you aware of where pride lingers in your life? Could you articulate that to someone? And throughout the day, as you're faced with various decisions, are you evaluating, is this for me? Is this coming from pride or is this for God? We say here in the church at City on a Hill, we are here for one another. Are you here for one another so much? And do you love one another so much that you're willing to point out pride in your brothers and sisters' lives? And are you willing to give people license to point that out in your life? Your spouse, your friends, your kids, your small group? And are you open to others about those struggles with pride? Right. Speaking of small group, you can go to accountability time and we can talk about this, maybe this little thing over there, but I know I have this huge, huge thing over here, but I'm, I'm not going to share that because it's embarrassing or etc. whatever the reason is. Is pride getting in the way of your growth? Is pride getting in the way of you really tackling that thing of taking that next step Jesus has for you? Because it's in seeing those areas of pride that we can apply our third point, the solution to pride. It's in seeing those areas of pride that we can apply the solution to pride. Verse 34. Let's see what happens to Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, what does he do? Lifted my eyes to heaven. And my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? And at the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Verse 37, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. For all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. God humbled Neb. God humbled Neb, and how did he do that? And maybe it's best to start with what didn't he do? Right, we talked about our culture being confused about humility. He didn't say, you know what, actually, I'm, uh, you're not a very great king, Neb. You know, you're, you're not that awesome. You're not as awesome as you think you are. It's, you know, this kind of like false humility, like humble brag, like, oh, no, I, you know, I'm the greatest king Babylon ever had, and, and, you know, this is probably the greatest city-state in existence at this time, but it's, it's no big deal, right? It's like, no, that wasn't it. It wasn't like, oh, I, I have a really accurate picture of my strengths and weaknesses now. That's humility. Now that I have a good, good picture of that, I'm good. No. Neb lifted his eyes to heaven. He lifted his eyes to heaven. He got the focus off of himself 
and being the point and saying, no, God is the one who deserves the glory. He is the point. Now, most scholars say that Nebuchadnezzar didn't actually become a true believer. It's, it's hard to say, I feel like. Um, we don't really know because there's no kind of uh, archaeological records to kind of collaborate it or, or refute it either way. The last 30 years of his rule were, is very scarce of any information about it, um, especially about his uh, kind of religion in, in those last decades. So we don't really know. But what's the point? He got the focus off of himself and on to God. He glorified God. And that's the solution, to quote Tim Keller. It's not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. It's not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. This principle runs throughout the whole Bible. Let me just give you one example, Matthew 23, 12. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. It's not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. And as we close, I want to invite the worship team back up. The problem isn't that we want glory. It's that we seek it in the wrong way. The problem isn't that we want to build a great kingdom. It's that we are trying to build the wrong kingdom. The problem isn't that we want to be like God. It's that we want to be like God in all the wrong ways. And Jesus showed us the right way. Even as the Son of Man came, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's what Jesus did for us. He wasn't clamoring for his own way. He emptied himself, fixing his eyes on the point. And he was able to say, not my will, God, but thy own. He lived the perfect life that we couldn't, he made the sacrifice that we couldn't. He sacrificed himself for us that we might be able to worship and pursue and make a name not for ourselves, but for the one who is worthy. And it's in that humble, humbleness, in that right focus, in seeing the point for who he is, that we find that joy that surpasses understanding that we hear so much about, that peace that we all want and the thing that stood in our way of accepting the gospel initially, the thing that still gets in our way sometimes is our pride. Our self-sufficiency says Jesus can't pay for our sins or I don't need someone to pay for my sins. I'm, I'm good enough or I can make up for it. I have to be the one, but we can't. You can't. I can't. I urge you to check your pride you're not the point. And maybe some of you have never uh, humbled yourself in that way. I've never uh, accepted the gospel. I've never trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of my sin. I urge you this morning, humble yourself. You're not the point. I hope this morning serves as a warning of that pride that we had before we felt the awesome power of, of God's saving grace in our lives.
I hope it's a reminder of what Jesus saved you from. But most of all, I hope you have joy. Joy in glorifying the one most worthy of glory. Glorifying the one who is self-sufficient, worshiping the one worthy of praise. And a life lived focused on him. We're going to do something a little different this morning. Normally we would pray, we'd sit down, we'd sing a song, and then take communion. Uh, But I want us to take communion next, kind of while this next song is playing. I just want us to think about what we just heard, what we were just studying. Take some time to kind of reorient yourself. There are ways in my life that I have slipped into this sort of self-focus, slipped into making me the point, and I know uh, God is supposed to be the point. So just take a few moments to kind of reorient yourself to God be the glory, that God would be the focus of your heart and of your life. And if you need to repent, if God is showing you ways or uh, forms of pride in your life that you weren't aware of, repent. And then, once you've done that, come up and take communion. Excuse me, take communion. We're going to kind of be self-serve this morning, so whenever you uh, find your heart in that place where you, you feel ready, come up and uh, take the elements. We practice uh, open communion here at City on a Hill because communion is a reminder of what Jesus has already done for us. It's a reminder of that uh, humbleness it took to accept Jesus into our lives. It's a reminder of the sin that required Jesus to sacrifice for us. But it's also a reminder of what that accomplished. So yes, do repent, do take stock of your pride, do reorient, take communion, and then rejoice. Rejoice in that pride doesn't condemn you because of what Jesus did on the cross. Rejoice that he was perfect. Rejoice in the blessings that you felt and you've seen and experienced in your life because of what Jesus has done for you and the, the, the blessings you get to experience even now as you live your life humbly oriented on who God is, what Jesus has done for you. Lives built not thinking about ourselves, but on God. Let's do that now.